Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about Rawls and Hayek. And in particular, we're going to talk about things that are made pre-political in liberal theory and specifically in uh, neoliberalism and uh, market liberalism. And we're going to talk specifically about the way that Hayek thinks about the role of the market, and then we're going to look at Rawls and think about the ways in which Hayek and Rawls intersect. And when you think about Hayek, the the question that we always love to ask uh, Paul One students, first-year students on Hayek, is how does Hayek decide when it's okay for the state to intervene and when not? Because if you read Hayek's work, uh, particularly his early work, The Road to Serfdom, it's full of cases where the state can intervene. The state's allowed to build infrastructure. The state's allowed to run a system of uh, insurance. The state is uh, permitted to run the currency. The state is permitted to guarantee everybody a minimum income. There are all kinds of cases where Hayek in his early work makes allowances for the state. And then in his later work, this stuff contracts considerably. And eventually, Later in Hayek's life, he even argues that the currency should be privatized. And so there's a question of whether Hayek's thought evolves or whether Hayek reveals more of what he thinks. What what explains all of this? And and Keynes, when Keynes was criticizing Hayek uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, Keynes's argument was that Hayek didn't have any clear principle for adjudicating this beyond whenever it is that the market, uh, the market needs you to intervene for its own protection, and that that's not a principle that is clear or easy to use. And I, you know, I was supervising Hayek for a number of years and, and having conversations with students about Hayek for a number of years. And I think when, if, you, if you really dig right down into it, ultimately for Hayek, the market is the thing that is the only fair way for Hayek to decide how to distribute resources. And Hayek when uh, talks briefly about social justice, and he claims that justice just doesn't apply to the market, that we shouldn't think of the market in terms of justice. It's not something that we can or should normatively evaluate. Because if we normatively evaluate the market for Hayek, that means that we are going to make claims about what ought to be produced when we don't know everybody else's preferences, which means either we're making false claims about everybody else's preferences or we're imposing our own preferences on everybody else. And if there is no justice in the market, uh, then you can't challenge the market on grounds of, of distributive unfairness. And yet, The market is a distributive mechanism. 
So when he says that the market is not a realm to which social justice applies, what he's really doing is kind of fetishizing the market as the only legitimate means in the first instance of distributing stuff. Mm. And so it's kind of a little bit of a bait and switch there because he positions the market as beyond the realm of justice. And yet the market is clearly a decision-making mechanism which distributes resources. And this makes him very different from someone like Nozick. We, we talked a little bit about maybe doing a Rawls-Nozick episode, and I ultimately decided to make it about Hayek. And the reason being is that Nozick makes substantive arguments for the justice of the market. But Hayek refuses to do that because Hayek says that the market is not a realm in which morality and justice apply. And in this way, Hayek occludes the reality that he has a normative commitment to markets. And we also considered doing Hayek with Karl Polanyi, the, the uh, Hungarian. And we ultimately decided not to do that because I want to talk about Rawls. But there is an area where Polanyi really matters for this. And it's, it's that Polanyi points out that laissez-faire itself is planned and that markets themselves have to be planned and organized. It takes political force to create and instantiate property rights. It takes political mm. force to protect property from seizure. Mm. You have to make political decisions to create a market. And to choose to create a market rather than something else, you have to believe that it's better to distribute things through a market. Uh, and in calling the market a spontaneous order, Hayek conceals the political relations that are involved in the construction of markets. And in this way, depoliticizes those relations. And so what you end up with in a Hayekian state is a state where the economy has been removed from politics. It's been depoliticized. Mm. And... This is, I think, the distinctive thing of, of the liberalism of the last 40 years or so. The liberalism of the last 40 years or so depoliticizes the economy and renders it outside the bounds of democracy. And Hayek himself was, was uh, very much of the view that if democracy ceased to support the market, the market was more precious than democracy. So in the case of Chile in the 70s, he was happy to throw Allende out. <laughs> in favor of Pinochet because Pinochet was committed to markets. Yeah. The thing that Hayek was normatively most committed to was markets, but it was also something he was completely unwilling to defend in moral or normative language. He was unwilling to make moral arguments for the market. He wanted to set the market up above politics, above morality, uh, in, a, in a kind of untouchable space as a foundation that you have to accept before you can do anything else. And it's it, it always we've done a number of episodes on themes broadly related to it, this this notion of the pre political the things that people set up as not up for political discussion the things that you're supposed to build into your politics and into your state uh, and never touch never think about never talk about never revise mm. and it's it's striking to me how forthright Hayek is in doing that yeah. And then there's Rawls. So Rawls wrote 
two very important books uh, and some others, but two very important ones, each of which was kind of the embodiment of a particular moment in liberal political thought. The first, A Theory of Justice, written in the 70s, was a theory of, dis of distributive justice and tried to articulate what, what justice is in a way that is very, very non-Hayekian. Mm. And uh, the way that that theory worked is that Rawls said, imagine that you're in an original position where you don't know anything about where in society you're going to end up, what social role you're going to have, how much money you're going to make. Uh, you don't know anything about your, your circumstances. What kind of society would you like to have given that you could end up anywhere in it? And he argued that you would want a society which maximizes the position of the worst off so that you would have the lowest odds of ending up in bad shape, what he called the maximum principle, or uh, sometimes it's called prioritarianism, giving priority to the worst off. Mm. And this was very attractive to a lot of people at the time. And it very much synced up with post-war 70s liberalism in a lot of ways. And then in the 90s, 20 years later, he comes out with another book called Political Liberalism. that is a very different book. And political liberalism essentially uh, concedes that Rawls isn't going to be able to persuade everybody that if they were in the original position, they would have chosen his two principles of justice. Mm. And that instead, what we need is an overlapping consensus among reasonable people on a more limited, purely political conception of justice, which applies only to what Rawls calls the basic structure or the constitutional essentials. Mm. And this makes it much harder for distributive justice to meaningfully come out of Rawls's theory. And there, there are two elements of Rawls's theory that make it hard for distributive justice to come out. The first is that distributive justice is for Rawls included in the second principle of justice, not the first. The first principle of justice says that we have to uh, have as much liberty as can be enjoyed by everybody. Uh, and Rawls says that the first principle of justice is lexically prior to the second. So that means any time that the second principle conflicts with the first principle, the first principle wins. So you can only try to bring about distributive justice insofar as you're not abridging liberty as understood within the first principle. Hmm. That's there even in a theory of justice. But when you get to political liberalism, now you can only pursue the two principles of justice insofar as you can get over an overlapping consensus on them. And that means it all comes down to what points of view are considered reasonable by Rawls. And that's a little bit of a vague thing. And a lot of people who have been influenced by Rawls have come, have, have decided that some things are reasonable and other things aren't. And they've, they've moved the terms around a bit and, and positioned different things in the boxes. But the key thing um, here is that if you have a notion of the reasonable that is very broad, then that's going to include points of view which don't apply the principle of distributive justice that Rawls uses. And if you have a version that's very narrow, that's very close to Rawls's own view, then that's going to prevent you from having a very large number of people in your overlapping consensus.
And Rawls seemed to believe, more or less, that the United States was an overlapping consensus of this kind or could be an overlapping consensus of this kind. And that the people who were living in the United States, the belief systems that were active in the United States, were compatible with the theory. Rawls is often positioned as a kind of defender of the American Constitution or some kind of American ideal. Mm. And of course, there are lots of people in the United States who, like Nozick, for instance, don't share Rawls's conception of justice. And so some Rawlsians have tried to say that libertarians and right wing right wingers aren't reasonable on Rawls's theory. They've tried to say that some of them. But that seems a little bit implausible. And so what, what the effect of this is, if you, if you take with me for a minute the interpretation that says that right-wingers are included in the realm of the reasonable, because they're a very large number of the people in America during the time when Rawls was alive and writing these books. Um, if, if you take that on board, then the implication is that the distributive principles are not allowed to be made political questions because there isn't enough agreement on them. Now, if you are someone of a more socialist or Marxist or left-wing persuasion, of course there isn't going to be an overlapping consensus on distributive principles because you've got some people who own capital and other people who earn wages and their distributive interests are fundamentally irreconcilable. And once you've conceded that you aren't going to be able to persuade everybody with the veil of ignorance and the original position, then the implication is that you're just going to accept that some people in our society won't share these principles and therefore we can't pursue these principles very far. And so Rawls and, and Hayek, both through different routes, make it impossible to meaningfully challenge within politics the system for distributing time and stuff. And they do it in different ways. And Rawls kind of backs into it. And Hayek does it very forthrightly. And people like Nozick straightforwardly make moral arguments for it. But what, what amazes me is, is, is not Nozick's position, because Nozick just straightforwardly makes a moral argument. Moral argument. Uh, what he calls the Wilt Chamberlain argument. Wilt Chamberlain, the famous basketball player, used to play on the Philadelphia 76ers uh, and the Los Angeles Lakers. Nozick said, people are going to basketball games to, to see Wilt Chamberlain play, and they're freely giving money to Wilt Chamberlain. And through their free transfers, Wilt Chamberlain ends up with a bunch of money. But each one of the transfers to Wilt was made freely uh, without any form of coercion. And therefore, each transfer is legitimate. And therefore, there's justice in transfers. And therefore, the outcome, because it proceeds from just transfers, is just. So if Wilt Chamberlain ends up with a huge amount of money because we all give him money, uh, then there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very honest argument from Nozick. Mm. In Rawls's case, you back into it because you can't establish a consensus. 
And in Hayek's case, you simply assert that justice doesn't apply to this, that the market is, as a distributive principle, is above moral or normative debate. And so what you get is three different kinds of justifications for a liberal view here. And all three of those justifications uh, are, include defenses of markets. And two of the three, with the exception of Nozick, refuse to defend markets in moral language, but nonetheless render markets not only uh, defensible, but but inextricably bound up with the state itself and with the concept of the political such that you can't meaningfully oppose them. Hmm. Does that make sense to you, Edmund? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, there are so many thoughts there. I, I think that with Hayek, uh, the point that um, the state has an important role in structuring the market um, uh, and thus that um, the market is in some sense political, um, I think is something that nowadays is, um, even by very um, fervent um, liberals, you couldn't find uh, a more... Uh, fervent supporter of uh, liberal democracy today than, or at least uh, you couldn't find a caricature of a more uh, uh, fervent supporter of liberalism than Francis Fukuyama, who wrote uh, the book The End of History um, and The Last Man in 1992, um, after writing an article in 1989 saying that the fall of the Berlin Wall meant that liberalism was dominant and there was no alternative and thus that liberal democracy was the end to history with a capital H. But Fukuyama's more recently argued that the neoliberal concept of the market as a non-political institution forgets that when, when you try to shrink the state and expand the market, you can often just bloat the state. You can often just force the state to suddenly take a larger role to manage the consequences of disembedding of markets from political control. So in other words, the Hayekian mission to expand the role of the market to the greatest degree possible and to shrink the state, it itself produces greater state intervention in the end when the state has to come in and rescue the economy from the effects of marketization, such as in the intervention of the Federal Reserve uh, to help out um, banks, uh, including European banks, after the financial crisis. So in a way, a high-ex project produces circularity, more marketization, followed by the state stepping in and taking an even bigger role than it did before, uh, such as in the accumulation of massive government debt after the post-crisis bank bailouts. Yeah. And there are points in The Road to Serfdom where Hayek admits a need for intervention because otherwise people won't put up with the market. If they don't have that guaranteed minimum income, then people won't put up with the market system. So you have to give them that intervention to get them to put up with it. But that's the only reason you're doing it. 
Right, right. It's not for any uh, further political goal. Which right. means as soon as you can get people to put up with the market without offering them stuff, that stuff goes away. And if you think about uh, conservative parties in European countries, a lot of uh, Americans uh, and to some degree Europeans think that conservative political parties in Europe are more left wing than, say, the Republican Party in the United States. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that conservative political parties these days try to reduce the role of the state as much as they anticipate people will willingly tolerate. And in Europe, the amount of, of, that people will willingly tolerate is not as great mm. as it is in the United States. And one of the talents of right-wing political parties over the last 40 or 50 years has been to, for the most part, gauge how much people are willing to accept and how quickly, and to, to more or less hit that mark. Mm. And that's a big part of why these conservative parties have been able to do as well as they've been able to do, because they don't simply enact their whole agenda without any concern for the political consequences. Right. And so it, it's interesting that Hayek himself displays a certain awareness about this. So to the point that you just made, when that's happening, that means that somebody is, is overreaching. Somebody has forgotten yeah. that you do have to intervene enough to get people to continue to support the intervention. And we're starting to see political candidates talk about this, it, not in public, but often in more private settings where people like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren have, have said, uh, or, or Thomas Piketty have talked about the need to make the system appear meritocratic and yeah. make it appear like if you follow the rules, you'll, you'll do okay as a means of, of making it appear legitimate to people. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing. <laughs> The guy who coined the term meritocracy, Michael Young, uh, coined it to characterize a kind of dystopia where, uh, where, where people feel that uh, their wealth is entirely self-deserved and this people who aren't at their level of position in wealth terms uh, are undeserving. This is Michael Young's idea of hell. <laughs> whereas it's being used today by, yeah, as you say, people like Elizabeth Warren as a utopia. Yeah. 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 And it, it, the point of meritocracy is, is again, to render obscure the distribution by naturalizing it, by, by placing it in a category that is beyond the realm of political discussion or debate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's also interesting the extent to which uh, Rawls, as you say, has to uh, step back from uh, his uh, more explicitly political um, stance on justice to yeah, an essentially depoliticized one um, by the end of um, political liberalism um, the, in, in the, yeah, in, in the 80s. And so it's, 
And one of the things that's interesting there is, is the way that pluralism is used by the Rawlsians to excuse embracing certain principles as defaults. Yeah. So you're left with a status quo, which is itself based on quite controversial normative claims. Mm. You can't change that status quo because that would be to act in a way that violates the pluralism that you're trying to encourage by having an overlapping consensus among reasonable doctrines. Mm. And yet the status quo is itself marked by distributive principles that are controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The liberal conception of justice for bulls is meant to be free from any particular comprehensive doctrine. It's meant to be, yeah, the, the overlapping consensus of these doctrines. For rules, if, if you have a comprehensive doctrine, you need to sign up to the liberal conception of justice because there, there's no way to get everybody agree other, um, to agree otherwise. So almost by definition, he frames the liberal conception of justice as beyond, as beyond political disagreement. Right. It's the thing that anybody, by virtue of being reasonable, would have to, to agree to. And I, the specific criteria for that is that you have to be willing to accept fair terms of cooperation, uh, whatever precisely makes terms fair. Mm. And you also have to be willing to accept the burdens of judgment. And the burdens of judgment, there are a variety of them, but they're largely reducible to the idea that you can't know that you're right, you can't be sure. Mm. Yeah. But the thing is... I. I don't think that it's possible to have a society that doesn't include controversial elements. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about something like how you distribute time or how you distribute roles to people, that is going to be done in a way that's controversial. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that gets back to what we were saying early in this in the show, the show's run about how our societies are kind of grounded on some fundamental exploitation. Mm. Going back to Plato and Aristotle, these distributions are create time for some people, but not everybody. Yeah. And that puts some people in position to develop whatever it is that one finds meritorious and others not. And when you say that we can't adopt any alternative distribution of time because alternative distributions of time are controversial and there's no consensus around them, or they violate the primacy of the market and the market is the only legitimate process. Right? And the effect of that is to render a lot of the controversial exploitative stuff that goes on in our society beyond the realm of discussion, beyond the bounds of discourse. Yeah. Hmm. And it's a, it's an interesting thing. Shortly before we went on uh, the vacation at Cambridge, there's a vacation between the first term, what we call Michaelmas and the second term what we call Lent. Uh, and shortly before that, 
Edmund and I were at a debate and, and uh, Edmund made an argument to do with um, wage slavery. And uh, recently, Bernie, uh, there was a Bernie, old Bernie Sanders quote where he talked about wage slavery that passed around on uh, Twitter. And the way uh, people were not willing to entertain that possibility, the possibility that uh, being put in a position where you don't have any alternative way of obtaining the means of subsistence beyond taking a job. Mm. That that's a coercive circumstance that's morally objectionable on some level. Mm. Uh, you know, the number of people who are not willing to entertain that is striking because we are often willing to talk about lots and lots of different kinds of small injustices, but not big ones like that. Right. Yeah, that's the irony that the Hayek will the depoliticization of the market. Hayek is intensely uh, moralistic about how um, the enlargement of the government is the road to serfdom, is the road to um, various forms of fascism, Hayek argues. And thus uh, Hayek thinks that the market is the way of avoiding um, a suppression of individual liberty that occurs, uh, he argues in the right-wing or the left-wing roads to um, totalitarianism. <laughs> but yeah, th then he's fine with um, social injustice in the market and social justice doesn't apply to the market. It's, yeah, it is a bait and switch. Uh, social justice implies in some, justice applies in some areas, but not others. Yeah, it's, it's the decision to kind of cordon social justice off from justice uh, and make that a kind of separate category that you don't want to apply or you don't want the theory. And so uh, there's a lot of reference in Hayek's thought to rule of law, mm. consistency in the application of rules. Yeah. But it, that's a kind of procedural plan not to do with substantive outcomes. Right. And Rawls does similar, makes similar kinds of procedural moves. And so does Nozick when Nozick says, as long as these transfers occurred in a procedurally uncoerced way, whatever follows on from them is fine. Hmm. And in Rawls's case, as long as we are making our decisions on the basis of an overlapping consensus and everyone is making appeals to public reason, public reason being the reasons that come out of the overlapping consensus and don't rely on any controversial beliefs, mm. then our, our basic structure and our constitutional essentials are fine. Mm. And Hayek's case, as long as we distribute things in accordance with, market, with the market procedure, whatever comes out of it cannot be questioned. Yeah. In each of these cases, uh, the emphasis is put on the procedures and the procedures are asserted as intrinsically valuable. Hmm. And anything which doesn't accord with the procedures has to stand down. And it's a particularly, I think, a, a difficult problem for Rawls because at the end of the day, the Rawlsian just has to assert that if anyone wants, 
wants to assert controversial beliefs in politics that they're being unreasonable. Mm. And in a way, this denies the reality of most of the political debates that we have that matter. Mm. And what it, what it does is it, it kind of re it restricts politics to things that aren't that important. Mm. Because if, it, if we can all get there on the basis of what we already have in common, then yeah, it's not that hard. The really difficult political decisions are the, the decisions where somebody's going to be really upset one way or the other. Hmm. When you have to choose between things that don't fit together neatly. Yeah. And I suppose Hayek's, Hayek's rejoinder would be, well, when you're trying to make that choice, um, why should you make it? Let the market make it. Yeah. But why is why is it that the market the market is the is the defensible procedure? Mm. Apart from Nozick, there isn't really an answer given. Mm. Though I guess there is an argument from expediency in Hayek that that um, there's an epistemological argument for Hayek. Right, Hayek right. says that you can't know enough about the economy to do anything else and have it work out the way you intend. Yeah. To be fair to Hayek, there's an epistemological argument yeah, and that, that we can't know enough. Yeah, and that dispersal of knowledge makes uh, markets more efficient than, yeah. What he yeah, uh, the knowledge yeah. dispersal claim, which is similar to a lot of epistemic Democrats like Helene Landmore or David Esland, uh, they make uh, kind of demographic objections to authoritarianism or epistemic arguments against authoritarianism on the basis that when you take a vote or when you use a jury that you are getting a better epistemic result because you are accessing a diverse array of minds rather than singular minds, mm. mm. which is a little bit of a different argument from the more purely procedural arguments about fairness. Yeah. And to Hayek's credit, he doesn't make a purely procedural argument about fairness. Yeah. That's more Nozick's um, domain, right? That, that it's a free transfer. So yeah. it's fair. And, and yet, if you're going to say that these decisions are based on more knowledge, then the implicit claim is that the kind of knowledge that the market is using is, is what is relevant for making decisions. And the knowledge that the market aggregates is knowledge about individual preferences. And so there is a kind of implicit claim here that individual preferences can be aggregated in some way and that that will give you the outcome that is the most uh, at most defensible or, or least rejectable or, or something of that nature. And of course, th there are going to be cases where what we collectively want is not the sum of our individual preferences. Mm. We may all individually prefer something which, if we all get it, produces disasters collectively. Mm. Yeah. 
you know, if you think about something like uh, environmental politics, mm. we may all want to drive cars all the time, um, but we may not like the end result of that in the long run. Uh, or we may... Any number of things. You guys can think of examples. You don't need me. <laughs> yeah. And I think healthcare and education are great examples. Uh, yeah, healthcare a situation where we will all freely transfer, you know, whatever it takes to keep ourselves alive, keep our loved ones alive. Uh, and unless somebody does something to protect us from being fleeced, we can be fleeced because there is no amount of money that is too much when you're talking about the life of your child or your, um, your partner. And similarly with education, if you don't really have an opportunity in our society to live a decent life, unless you get a college degree, uh, then people will spend exorbitant amounts of money trying to get these things. And they will be ripped off because it's a captive market. When you put people in a situation where their fundamental life circumstances or ability to survive will be undermined if they don't give you the money, mm. that's like a mugging. The education system and the healthcare system, particularly in the United States, work like petty theft. Yeah. This is ironic given that... Uh one of the points that Charles Tilly makes about state formation is that uh, certain states form in a way that looks like um, a kind of uh, criminal organization and that the, the the state isn't the only institution that uses um, that uses coercive power in this way. No, certainly not. Lots of institutions extract rents in exchange for basic things that you need to live or to live decently. Yeah. Yeah. And all of that gets obscured over when you naturalize those relations. It's interesting when uh, David Hume defended uh, property rights, David Hume's argument for property rights is that people will freely help their, their family and friends, people that they know, but they're suspicious of strangers. And the reason that they're suspicious of strangers is that strangers will tend to steal from each other to give stuff to their family and friends. Mm. And unless there's some set of property rules to prevent it, Hume argued, uh, that's what would happen. And so by creating a system of property rights, Hume argued that you enlarge the space for trust and cooperation. Mm. But when those property rights are organized in such a way that lots of people have the capacity and incentive to extract rents from other people. That's a system in which the theft from strangers to give to family and friends has been incorporated into the property law and institutionalized. And so it's not obvious that just any set of rules regarding distribution of property will protect you from that racket and certain sets of rules will facilitate it or direct it in particular directions. Mm. And one, one argument that I think is, 
is well worth pointing out, is that when the state extracts rents from you in the form of, say, taxation, uh, a democratic state, there is there's some possibility of organizing to win power within that state or to change the way that state raises money or spends money. There are avenues open to you. But when a private firm or worse, a network of private firms in a, in a market are engaged in the same behavior, you as the consumer have very little recourse. And the only way that you get any kind of protection as a consumer is if the state is willing to step in and help you. So when you want to reign in a company, your way of reigning in a company is going to the state. Hmm. So if your strategy for protecting yourself from the state is companies, well, companies themselves are, are set up by the state's own corporate law. And a company is, can only be whatever the state says a company is. And it will only act in accordance with the incentives that the state constructs for companies when it sets up its corporate law. Hmm. So when people imagine that dealing with a corporation is, is a way of kind of getting around the state, that's not true. And if you think it's true, then it will occlude from you the reality that the only way that you can protect yourself from institutions and organizations that are rent-seeking and out to, to take from you is some kind of collective political endeavor. Hmm. Yeah. And corporations, the, the creation of a corporation is a very effective way of directing people away from the places where they can have influence. You know, if you're protesting a company or boycotting a company or sending letters to a company or tweeting at a company, writing articles about how unethical a company is, uh, you're not expending your energy in the place where it can potentially result in a decision. Hmm. And if you do, it will only be because there was a controversy. And later on, once the controversy dies down, it, it return to business as normal. Yeah. It's interesting when Hayek talks about a spontaneous order as opposed to a designed order where stuff is centralized and decisions are made from a, a central node. Um, yeah, in a spontaneous order, there are meant to be multiple nodes. And yeah, the logic of um, free competition sorts out um, the more efficient and the less efficient practices. But <laughs> Hayek uh, supposes that the market order is the main example um, in society of a spontaneous order. But if the corporation, uh, as uh, Benjamin has just suggested, functions a bit like a state, because just like a state, a corporation uses uh, coercion. It uses coercion, uh, employer-employee wage relations, um, and it also uses legitimation. It tries to tell its customers why they should buy the product, tries to tell the employees why they are better off in this company than other companies. So it's a bit like the state in involving 
um, coercion and legitimation, Weber's two ingredients for uh, statehood, though it's of course not a Weberian state because a Weberian state has a monopoly of legitimate coercion over a territory, while the corporation is not necessarily territorial and certainly doesn't have a monopoly of that legitimate coercion. Um, but it, nevertheless, it, it is still internally a bit like a state. And so the relations between companies are analogous to the relations between states. And, and so what would be the comparative to a market order as a spontaneous order? It would be the interstate system, uh, competition between states. And this could also be an engine of uh, social evolution where you get institutional variation between the, the units and the selection for the most competitive institutions within that order. And so I, I guess one of the things that uh, Hayek also didn't um, consider fully is how political the origins of capitalism really were, that, as Walter Schiedel points out in his uh, uh, latest book, uh, Escape from Rome, it was the fall of Rome and the fact that Rome never came back in Europe that meant that you had an essentially uh, anarchic um, state system, that is to say, uh, a state system with no single empire, no single uh, state to rule over the uh, territorial states and later nation states, that there were separate states. And this multi-state system, um, unlike, say, the unified um, imperial state in China, though it broke apart every so often, whenever the Chinese state fell apart, it always came, generally came back because um, of nomadic pressure from the steppes. Um, the fact that Europe was disunified politically was a fundamental condition for the rise of markets, because once Britain started adopting uh, capitalistic practices um, with wage labour, uh, political centralisation, and the emergence of a new kind of ruling class, as well as um, a new way of doing trade and commerce, uh, this kind of practice was selected for as the most competitive, as more competitive than a feudal um, order. And thus other states started to adopt um, these practices and come the Industrial Revolution. Lots of states were imitating and emulating the um, Industrial Revolution in, um, in the UK. Uh, but the rise of the free market order, ironically, does have something to do with spontaneous orders, but it doesn't have something to do with non-political spontaneous orders. It arose from the spontaneous order that was the multi-state system in Europe. And I think that's an interesting point, that in a sense Hayek was right, that uh, spontaneous orders can help to um, create the necessary variation for the emergence of something more competitive than the status quo technologically. But that doesn't just have to be a market order. The market order may be convenient for a certain period in history, but you know, the fact that markets or, or capitalistic markets arose from interstate competition in Europe suggests that uh, even if spontaneous orders are a dynamo of social evolution, it's not a non-political dynamo. It is a political one. Yes, yes, because the corporation is is originally designed by states. Yeah, uh, you know, David Runciman likes to call both states and corporations artificial agents, and yeah. the corporations are like the state's babies. It's it's like the state's kids, and they oversee domains of society that the state does not 
personally want to get involved with or have uh, view it or doesn't view itself as having the capacity to get involved with. Yeah. I think that you're quite right to draw the comparison to the international system because the international system does kind of work like a market. And who are the customers in the international system? Well, they're the rich people, the investors who can direct their investment to whichever state uh, treats them in the way that they best like to be treated. Mm. And so what states do now is they compete for customers, i.e. billionaire money. And uh, the taxpayers, the citizens of states are rendered workers through that mechanism. Mm. In a way, the state has kind of been turned into a giant firm. Mm. Because at this point, at this point, the state itself is in such a competitive environment economically that its ability to deviate from competitive economic imperatives is very limited. And so I think in, in times, earlier times, there was a lot of military competition among states. States had to produce efficient militaries, and if they didn't produce efficient militaries, they would be conquered or colonized. And the economy had something to do with that, but that wasn't the only relevant feature. Yeah. And now it's not about efficient military. It's about efficiently producing a population that is uh, good human capital and worth investing in for billionaires. Yeah. And so we are kind of the product that's being sold by our states to these investors. And they go, please come and uh, hire our citizens and give them jobs. Please come and use your money to do that, and we will do all of these things for you in return. We'll give you tax cuts, and we'll make the regulations what you want them to be, make the labor laws what you want them to be, uh, set up a free trade agreement that creates a non-governmental board that will oversee trade across, across borders in a way that is amenable to you. Uh, We'll bring in foreign labor if you want from wherever you want us to bring it in from. We, we kind of become the product here. And the state becomes a, a, you know, a merchant hawking us to, to rich people. And I think that's a relatively recent phenomenon insofar as the amount of economic integration globally only only relatively recently in human history became this immense. And at earlier points, it was more of an internal thing. You had elites that were internal to the state that were located physically in the state that could not easily leave or easily uproot themselves because their wealth was tied to physical factories and before that land that was located in the polity that was accessible that you could potentially go out and take from them or burn or, or do something to. So they had skin in the game in their respective polities. Particular rich people had skin in the game and could expect that if their state you know, lost a war or something, that they could be expropriated by the state that defeated their state. Yeah. And now they don't have to worry about that kind of, of 
large scale, great power violence. Yeah. And they can move their money around freely without worrying about somebody stealing it from them with the exception of a small number of, of countries that of course they call the rogue states that are potentially still willing to confiscate rich people's assets. Yeah. Uh, and that, that small group of rogue states is excluded from international markets and that is denied the investment that it would need to develop. Hmm. I think it's also interesting that Hayek makes a good point that, uh, that at a certain period in history, the importance of having a spontaneous market order um, increases um, and the need for um, having prices determined on a free market to ensure that demand equals supply um, is quite significant when you have um, what capitalism has of rapid technological development, initially with uh, only a moderate level of automation and thus with little central knowledge over the total uh, economy. I think the expediency point, the, the, yeah, the epistemic point, uh, as you point out, Benjamin, um, is important because at a certain period in human history, it turned out that we had this technological development, but there wasn't the, uh, the technologies of knowledge, if you like, that we would need to... Uh, manage the economy in a designed or fully political way. Um, markets resolve that dilemma by uh, trying to introduce uh, a price mechanism um, by which uh, demand can equal supply without uh, direct central manipulation. But, but I guess, of course, what this forgets is that there's no guarantee that technological development will remain the same. And... Uh, I've just finished listening um, to uh, a, a, an interesting other podcast episode with um, David Brunsman had on his podcast, Talking Politics. And, and he concluded that by uh, speculating that while um, people like um, um, Ayond in the 70s tried to create um, some kind of designed um, state-managed order um, in under conditions of early capitalism um, or you know, moderately advanced capitalism um, and failed. Today, the technologies that we have are such that it, it could be possible, at least on the digital sphere, to have uh, algorithms that have a considerable degree of information um, that they can process about the total economy, um, which has already, in a way, favoured designed orders over spontaneous orders in many spheres, such as on uh, 
Spotify on these central um, platforms, which um, where there's not a, a free market uh, competition, but there is still a kind of a market of sorts. It's just not there's just not a, a, the same kind of price mechanism. It's a single payer um, system, and that that already, in a sense, is a designed order, uh, algorithmic socialism, if you like, um, and. Yeah, it's interesting. David con con concludes that podcast by speculating that uh, what was impossible in the 20th century um, might be possible in the 21st due to an advancement of technology, which would be an ironic conclusion to Hayek's uh, technological de determinism, that Hayek thinks that you need a spontaneous order to manage the technological development. But that leaves open the question, what happens when you have enough technology to resolve the problem of decentralized information. Once you can agglomerate the information in a central node, uh, can't you then start designing the order in a more direct way? Um, um, albeit not necessarily in a way that involves control over transactions. Spotify doesn't tell you what songs to listen to, um, but equally it doesn't make you pay individually for each song. Um, the problem, of course, with that is that it, Spotify acts as the state would act. It acts as that kind of designed order, but it's still a private thing. And so people still have to pay money for it and for other media platforms. Yeah. Um, and Spotify isn't answerable to them and isn't running their interest. It, yeah. it reminds me of an idea that I, I'm quite fond of uh, called, uh, that I like to call fund.gov, the idea that we have a single payer system for art, uh, at music, movies, TV, these kinds of things. Mm. And it, it is only conceivable as a, as a system in an internet era where you could have something like a Netflix. Mm. And what makes, that, what makes that potentially work is that if you set up some kind of algorithm for determining how to compensate particular artists, uh, that algorithm would be something that you could potentially revise uh, collectively if you were running one of these streaming services through a state. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about Netflix or um, Spotify or YouTube, all of these services have some kind of algorithm that they use to compensate creators uh, and they're all paying them out of some central pot that they have. Yeah. But the companies are just looking to maximize the amount of money they take in. Mm. And a really well-functioning entertainment sector would not work that way. It would instead have a pot that was being distributed in a way that is meant to produce a thriving art scene and also uh, meant to ensure that the public gets stuff that the public wants. And there have been so many complaints over the years, especially about, say, YouTube or Spotify, yeah. in terms of how people are compensated, in terms of what kind of art is encouraged and what kinds are not encouraged. Yeah. It, it seems very clear to most people who use these websites that the market is not producing the optimal set of artistic creations and that there was a time, you know, even under different algorithms at previous points 
when the content that was encouraged on YouTube or the content that was encouraged on Spotify was more in alignment with what we collectively want. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's something it's time has not yet come, but there will, I think, eventually have to be some kind of reckoning with the fact that we now have a, a whole generation of people who think that art should be free at the point of use, who are accustomed to downloading and streaming stuff without paying for it at that point. Mm. Uh, there, that's going to have to be taken care of. And we're going to have to deal with the fact that these initially these kind of fun and exciting streaming services and social networks have now acquired immense amounts of power over what gets made, what doesn't get made, what gets said, what doesn't get said. If you get banned from Facebook, banned from Twitter, if you, uh, if, if Netflix isn't interested in buying your program or, or uh, Spotify doesn't, doesn't want you on its, its service, that is really crippling. And private companies are now able to deny people the ability to access these marketplaces of ideas and marketplaces of artistic content yeah. in, at minimum, an oligopolistic way, and in some cases, I would argue, a monopolistic way. Yeah. And they do it on the basis of whatever serves their public image and bottom line, and that's very arbitrary. So there's no rule of law, even in Hayekian terms for who gets to be on YouTube and who doesn't and what gets demonetized and what doesn't get demonetized. Uh, and the only way you could really resolve this is by making it answerable to the people who watch and make the content by democratizing it and putting it under public ownership. Yeah. And of course, those algorithms would have to be content neutral. If the state got involved in censoring that content, that would be a problem. But the thing is that the state has some commitment to free speech and we have some commitment to the idea that it's not OK for the state to go around and shut people up. We don't have that commitment when it comes to the corporation. So if a private co corporation owns a space like Twitter or YouTube or Facebook, there is no legal basis for objecting to them banning people in an arbitrary way based on whatever happens to serve their interests in the moment. Hmm. And the result is that we have a lot of people who spend a lot of time online just just trying to get people banned that they don't like. And the companies will do it if enough people ask them to do it or if people who are important ask them to do it. Um, and there's no there's no recourse to that. They there's no justice on on social media or on these streaming sites, these streaming platforms. But here's the irony: shouldn't wouldn't shouldn't the Hayekians already be demanding a shift to a democratic designed order? Because the current um, set of conditions on 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 the internet and on streaming platforms and social media is such that uh, because there are only a couple of uh, only a few uh, major social media uh, platforms, only a couple major streaming platforms for music. Video platforms. Instead of a truly Hayekian spontaneous order, we have a set of 
open a narrow set of corporate designed orders, which, uh, as you point out, suppress individual liberty by uh, using censorship um, however they like. Um, and the alternative that, 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 that you've proposed, Benjamin, at fun.gov, a democratic designed order with uh, a set of rules that we agree upon collectively um, and that doesn't involve the same level of uh, censorship that we currently see, <laughs> shouldn't the Hayekians, if they care so much about individual liberty, Benjamin B, arguing enthusiastically for fun.gov, at what point did the Hayekians forget about individual liberty? <laughs> at what point did individual liberty become uh, sacrificable um, in favour of corporate profits? Because this, it, the moral well, argument... I think, yeah. I think that they, they would argue that this is unjust, but their solution would be different from mine. Because Hayek ultimately opposes monopolies, and in this, in this case, he's a trespasser, just like you know, somebody like Elizabeth Warren. Right. And yeah. so the, the answer for them is to proliferate additional private platforms, additional social networks, additional streaming websites. The thing is, I don't want to have to visit piles and piles and piles of different streaming services. You know, I don't want to have to go to Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and Amazon and whichever other ones are out there now. And also, I don't want to have to pay extra fees for each one. If yeah. you remember some years ago when Netflix was really the only major streaming service in, in the video space, uh, you paid a fee that was lower than you currently pay. And you had access to everything that was streamable pretty much on the, on the internet, unless you were going to a pirate site. Mm. And now you have a bunch of different streaming platforms. And now if you want to access the same percentage of the content that's being made, you have to spend a lot more money. And it's starting to look a lot more like cable TV, where... If you want all of the content, you have to buy a bundle of different streaming services and the cost just balloons and balloons and balloons. And most of the content that is made on Netflix and, and these other streaming services now would not be competitive if they weren't able to extract all of this money from us so that we can get access to their individual streaming services, right. just like with cable. One of the things that cable television caused is a great waste of resources on terrible TV shows that nobody wanted to watch. Yeah. And the same thing is now occurring where the streaming networks are making huge amounts of terrible content that nobody wants to watch because they've managed to extract absurd rents from all of us as we try to be able to see the one show on each of the different streaming networks that we want to see. Yeah. And the result is a gigantic amount of waste. We end up with an entertainment sector that's bloated and inefficient. And that's precisely the critique that is often made of state-dominated systems, that they're bloated and inefficient. But our entertainment sector is bloated and inefficient. Most of yeah. this stuff would not be competitive on this model. And I think at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get considered that no one would think to make uh, or, or that no one would be willing to give a chance to that could potentially thrive in a publicly run system in which we took care of niche things, 
because not everything has to justify itself. Mm. What you get uh, under the private model is a whole bunch of identical, terrible shows, each of which is trying to cater to the same uh, imagined audience. Mm. And we could get, if, uh, if we could make it so that people who are currently kind of on the fringe and aren't able to get noticed by private companies, you know, if they had a chance to get going by access to a streaming platform, there's a lot more independent creation that would get going. And that's what YouTube used to be like before the YouTube algorithm got very top heavy and only the people who make videos constantly are able to make real money doing it. Mm. There are all these people who became creators and artists in the earlier days of YouTube because YouTube created a way for someone who wasn't very experienced, didn't have a lot of connections, didn't know a lot of people to be able to get in and make something and get something for that. Yeah. Yeah. We could design an algorithm that would be much more welcoming to new creators and to people who are just starting out and experimenting with new things. And that would create a much more generative artistic space than we now have. And in the, in the earlier days of the Internet, we got a lot more weird stuff than we get now. It's all becoming more homogenous as the Internet corporatizes and oligopolizes. Yeah. And, and just creating more duplications of the, the social networks and the streaming services isn't going to accomplish this. There are real benefits to having all of it in one place where you can just get right at it. You want all of your friends on one messaging service so that you don't have to check you know, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and GroupMe and your you know, texting on your phone and what, whatever other messaging services people use now. Your DMs on Twitter. Hmm. It's ironic that Hayek thought that it was the private ownership of property that was uniquely conducive towards spontaneity. But it seems that today, at least online, it's private ownership that is harming spontaneity. And it would be some kind of single-payer um, system uh, that would enhance spontaneity, enhance individual liberty. Uh, and due to this technological change, this stuff is now possible um, and doesn't simply involve what people usually associate with public ownership, which is lots of bureaucracy. Um, and um, being no, In many ways, it streamlines it because you have yeah. all of these duplications of bureaucracy, every service, every streaming service, Every social network has its own independent duplicate yeah. bureaucracy, yeah, which yeah. adds more cost. And all of the people in, in those managing jobs need to extract rent so that they can make comfortable salaries. And it just creates an immense, immense amount of waste. And another thing, you know, if you think about the film industry, all of this money gets poured into a very small number of blockbuster films that have everyone is uh, that, that the studios have determined are likely to make overwhelmingly large amounts of money. And if you want to make smaller movies that aren't as lucrative, that are more niche, people aren't interested in investing in those smaller projects now mm. because there are these sure thing cash cow projects. Mm. And if we, say, instituted some kind of cap on how much money a particular film can earn through this algorithm, 
then that investment would have to disperse to other projects. And we could create a system where a lot of stuff that currently can't find money could, could get some and, and get an opportunity and a chance. We're denying a lot of people the opportunity to create new stuff through this, through this system. Mm. And it seems to be getting worse all the time. The situation for creators is getting worse all the time. And more top-heavy, so that the people who won the internet five years ago, ten years ago, become permanently ensconced with these large audiences, and anyone who comes along later is late to the party and doesn't get a chance. Mm. Yeah. I guess one of the counterintuitive things about your fund.gov idea, Benjamin, is that though it would involve public ownership, it doesn't involve uh, public control as such. It involves laying down the rules, um, but it doesn't involve, um, yeah, the, the state curating the, the, the media. It, it involves, yeah, individual creators doing that. Um, right. It, In many ways, it's the state setting specialized rules for a market to make that market function much right. better. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, you, it wouldn't be enough in and of itself. A state single payer system for these kinds of things wouldn't be enough to create a world that is just in some kind of maximalist sense. You'd have right. to do a lot of other things to regulate the way that individual film companies or film teams or, or whoever the, the groups of people are who make the, the, the art. You would need other regulations to make sure that internally within those projects, everybody is being treated fairly and decently. But the nice thing about some kind of single payer system is that at least the incentives in terms of what you make are to some degree kept in some relation to what we want. Yeah. Do you think this was ever possible at any other period in history? Because I guess this is the other question that is it only that we have this technology now in the 21st century that this kind of um, Palanian dream of a fully embedded market, uh, a single payer system, a spontaneous order, but where the fundamental conditions are set collectively. Um, is, this, um, is this idea, this possibility, something that was possible, practical in the past? Or do you think, um, do you think David Brunsman's right that essentially what people like Aeond were trying to do in the 70s and in other states um, was essentially um, preemptive. In other words, <laughs> say um, in the 70s, uh, the crisis of Keynesian um, post-war capitalism, was that pivot to neoliberalism the uh, efficient response to the crisis? Or is there, would there been any possibility of doing anything like this back then? Or was the technology just not yet developed? Did we need to go through neoliberalism is a broader question. Well, I think that there are certain non-tradable sectors in which it's possible uh, or non-tradable or, or at least where there is some kind of way that you could handle trade while doing it through a single payer system. Okay. Um, where this is possible now. And I'm not sure it would have been possible then because yeah. of what is technologically needed to, 
to have some kind of algorithm or formula for paying people that is fair and uh, publicly accessible. I, I'm not enough of a technological expert mm. to be able to say for sure what was available in the past or what could have been done in the past. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that even, uh, even with this stuff, you would still have some problems in the 70s simply because we started heavily integrating economies without setting political rules for how this kind of new global market would operate. Right. And so the, the central problem that we have is if you try to set up internally within one state a very good system of internal markets, those internal markets, because they will serve the needs of ordinary people, won't be most competitive in terms of securing international investment. Mm. And so I think the, the major risk to this, in my mind, is not the Hayekian question of uh, epistemologically, can you know enough to do it? Mm. It's an international politics question of how are we going to do this when we are at this point thoroughly embedded in, addicted to, and dependent on global economic integration. And that global economic integration creates severe penalties for doing anything which really upsets very wealthy people. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the other difficulty with speculating about uh, alternative counterfactuals in the past, because um, one of the reasons why um, states often failed to um, take a leftward shift in response to crises like the, uh, like the oil crisis of the 70s is, is that uh, small states would face, yeah, pressure from investors. They might face capital flight. They may, may face, uh, yeah, socialist states would face sanctions from rich states. So as well as the technological impediments to, um, uh, to, to re-embedding markets in yeah, the Yeah, especially when yeah. the, once the richest and most powerful states in the 70s decided that they were going to go in this direction, that sets up race to the bottom incentives for other states. Right, yeah. That are much harder for those states to resist. Yeah. So, you know, when I teach uh, kind of the inequality topic and, you know, why are democracies so unequal, one of the points I always make to students is that there are certain states that internally, within their internal politics, were able to decide we want to go in the neoliberal direction. There were a lot of other states that would not have made that decision internally based on what was going on within the society, yeah. but were dragged into that by the pressure that was created by the initial states that did it. Uh, the United States, the United Kingdom chose to do it through their political system. And then subsequent states were kind of pushed into it to varying degrees at varying paces. Uh, and I think that that's the difficult thing, unless you have a very, very powerful state that is leading some alternative direction, these big structural incentives are going to be very hard for anybody to get out from under. Yeah, yeah. And, and you also have to wonder, in the 70s, the United States was big enough that it could really change the direction states were going in by creating different incentives with its behavior. Mm. And a big question we have to ask now is, say the United States is committed to creating different incentives, which itself is, that would be something. Uh, is the United States still powerful enough to 
create an incentive system schema that is different enough that other states would feel like they had space to follow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point, if the United States declines relative to other states, it will cease to be the case that the United States can independently shift the incentive schema. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the rise of yeah, what international relations theorists called multipolarity, the existence of multiple poles, multiple uh, uh, centers of power in the international system uh, creates a um, problem because it means that uh, it's very difficult to change the system if each state has as much power as every other. Or at least if there's no central node. Yeah, the structural logic overdetermines at that, at that stage. If there isn't a node that is, if not very disproportionately powerful, the central, the central node. Yeah. Yeah. So it's in a way a, yeah, a good thing that there is at least one state, the U.S., that um, has the... Um, level of financial hegemony that could be necessary for incentivizing a change in direction if necessary um, we live if in a, ever yeah. if ever we were so fortunate as to see it choose to use that yeah, for anything yeah. other than the the further extension and deepening of of what we've seen over the last half a century yeah yeah uh, but, but I, yeah i kind of to kind of because we're, we're starting to go on a little a little ways now yeah uh, to kind of start to wrap up. Uh, yeah. At so many different stages in the history of political thought, different things have taken to be, have been taken to be natural and pre-political and not something that you can challenge or dispute. And what happens whenever you take something and set it up as pre-political is that eventually you come to a, a time or a circumstance where that thing cannot sustain its pre-political status, mm. where that thing becomes a liability rather than something which helps you. Yeah. And if you continue to insist that that thing has to continue to have pre-political status, it's going to cause problems for the maintenance of the state's order, and you're going to get those charismatic leaders and populist movements and, that are going to give you a lot of trouble. And we talked in the Augustine and Schmidt episode about what kind of happens when religion is given mm. that pre-political status and, and uh, the consequences eventually you, you lose that religious hegemony and then you're thrust into a world where uh, people are splintering off. And if you continue to, to do what the uh, conservatives did coming out of the Middle Ages and just keep insisting, keep insisting that we've got to maintain the hegemony of that doctrine. Uh, you're not going to be able to adapt and you're going to get left behind. Mm. Yeah. The, the, I think that the big, one of the big things that we've forgotten that a lot of, uh, ancient political theorists understood on some level is that the political is in bed with everything. 
And that as soon as you try to take something and set it off on an island alone and separate from the political, uh, you're trying to, to stop change and dynamism. Right. Yeah. And you can't have ultimately a durable or sustainable order that is not dynamic. It's an attempt to freeze time. And it's an attempt to resist the ephemeral and the fact that there is no static system which can straightforwardly reproduce itself in a steady state way. Human systems always change. And the problem with any, anything that's pre-political, making anything pre-political, no matter how much you love it, no matter how dear it is to your heart, is that a circumstance will eventually come along where that thing doesn't fit anymore. Mm. And if you have naturalized that thing to the point that you can't even see that it is something that was adopted because it served a purpose in a particular moment, uh, if you get ensnared in the illusion that that thing is the only way that you can have a society and have it be okay, trouble, trouble follows from that. Yeah. Major conflicts follow from that. Yeah. That resistance to the dynamism that, that it has to come eventually, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, and the re- that, yeah. that gets people in trouble. Yeah. And the reason why politics is dynamic and lends dynamism to society is that, uh, as we discussed in the Hobbes episode, politics is about, uh, contrary to what Rawls was suggesting, in political liberalism, uh, it's about managing disagreement, um, managing discord, um, managing uh, Hobbesian subjectivity and the separation of minds, the fact that uh, we're unlikely to come to uh, consensus on important political questions because of, um, yeah, because of the fact that we're not a hive mind uh, and uh, forgetting about that, forgetting about managing disagreement and pretending it does exi- doesn't exist will, as Benjamin just pointed out, lead in the end to more disagreement. And by ignoring politics, we will fail to uh, not only evolve and change uh, as times change and as uh, disagreements need managing and sorting out, um, but we'll also um, fail to um, fulfill the central function of politics, which is um, managing competition and managing disagreement. And these factors, yeah. conflict and discord, will increase inevitably if we fail to recognize the importance of politics. And, and the clever kind of bait and switch that Rawls and, and Hayek pull is they say that they are taking into account disagreement. We can't agree on what we want society to make, so let the market decide. Mm-hmm. We can't agree on conceptions of the good, so let's find an overlapping consensus on the basic structure and the constitutional essentials, mm-hmm. right? They say we can't find agreement, so let's have agreement on something else. Yeah. And then use that agreement to bulldoze through any other disputes that we might have. And the trouble is... In the search for agreement, you are still going to find more disagreement. 
And yeah. if you try to set up a procedure as as pre-political or non-political, even that will eventually end up right in the same place. It's yeah. not just substantive values that can be unsuited to the circumstance. Yeah. It's also procedural values. There is no procedure that is so good that it can be used in any circumstance, in any situation. Not even the market, not even the overlapping consensus. Yeah. And I guess on the moral level, it, it kind of treats people, depoliticization treats people as units, as units in a market competition, as procedural tools, um, rather than as um, actors with a capacity for reflection, a capacity for conscious disagreement, a capacity for changing their minds. And so for all of liberalism's um, supposed fetish for free will, <laughs> in fact, the procedural fetish um, ends up effectively dehumanizing people, turning people into um, mere instruments for generating a consensus. Rather yeah, than just as, consumers, yeah. just voters, yeah. just choosers. Yeah. 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 I, the free will myth that liberalism construct tries to make up for the failure to treat people as people. <laughs> and it's, it's ironic for uh, liberalism that uh, an ideology that uh, promulgates itself as being humanistic ends up through depoliticization, removing people from history and imagining that history is not the history of people. Uh, it's the history of markets and procedures. Uh, and it's by putting the state and politics back into history that we put people back into history and in people putting people back into history, um, we put dynamism and contingency and uncertainty back into history. And that lets us make political decisions a lot better than if we imagined that history was simply the history of a price mechanism and yeah. procedural. Yeah, because politics is the realm in which decisions are taken, controversial decisions that not everybody's going to love. And if you try to have a world without politics, then what you end up with is a world where no one makes decisions. Yeah. And in that world, we can't identify with anything that happens on any level, individually or collectively. Mm. We're all rendered nothing but subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was fun. Yeah. Thank you guys yeah. so much yeah, thanks. for listening. Yeah. To us talk about Rawls and Hayek and a little bit of a few other things along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love this theme of the pre-political. Everybody wants everything to be pre-political. That, that matters to them. It's, it's a tragedy. Yeah. Politics is where the fun is. Yeah. That's, where, that's where life is, guys. Yeah. But politics is tough, I guess, but the reason it's tough is partly because we've been tr treating stuff as pre-political. And politics, one of the reasons why it might be so toxic and so difficult right now is that we've been imagining certain things as pre-political. Maybe if we treat these things as political, um, politics might be more fun.
and also more terrifying. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it can be terrifying when things that you've taken to be foundations in your life are, are called into question. And right. Uh, and sometimes it, it has gotten sufficiently awful that it spills over into conflict. But I think the conflict is driven less by embracing dynamism and more by resisting it. It's when we resist right. the dynamism and the need for change yeah. that it spills out into extreme response. And if we recognize that we have to we have to make a move here before you escalate to that point, then there's still room to demonstrate that the institutions have life in them, but they're not so sclerotic that they have to be thoroughgoingly trashed. Hmm. And if we can't demonstrate that, then uh, eventually a cost will be paid. You can't hide from the cost. It will, if you don't pay it when it's cheap, you'll pay it when it's dear. Mm. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, I, I know we took a little bit of a break. Uh, we had the we had the vacation, and, and Edmund has been working on some essays the last few weeks, but we should be back on a more regular schedule, at least for the next couple of months. Yeah. So there should be another one of these out in a couple of weeks. Great. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.